Hey folks, I'm Will Jarvis, CEO of ValueBase. Welcome to Assessment Matters, a podcast dedicated to exploring the world of mass appraisal. Whether you are a property appraiser, real estate professional, or just interested in the topic, this podcast will provide you with valuable insight and expert perspectives on the latest trends and developments in the field. This week, we're joined by NYU Stern Professor of Finance, Arpit Gupta, to discuss trends in the commercial real estate market and what we can expect in the coming year. Well, Arpit, how are you doing this afternoon? Doing well. How are you? Doing great. Doing great. Thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show. Do you mind uh, giving us a brief bio and kind of your background? Absolutely. So I got my PhD in finance from Columbia University, focusing on real estate finance, thinking a lot about the financial crisis and its implications for households. And I'm now in my seventh year, I think, at NYU Stern uh, School of Business. Uh, I teach in the finance department. I have some courses on real estate finance, and my research is also generally focused in that area. Love that. Love that. Well, Arpit, can you get us started and talk a little bit about what's going on with commercial real estate at the moment? Yeah, it's a really interesting time period because the different food groups or parts of commercial real estate have been really interestingly impacted by the pandemic as well as the recovery from it. So the big picture story, I think, is the impact of higher interest rates. So when we kind of think about valuation in general, we think about that value changing either because cash flows are impacted or because discount rates are affected. And changes in interest rates typically have large impacts on those valuation ratios. So the fact that interest rates have increased so much this year as a result of the Fed hikes has had large impacts on real estate in many different areas. And those impacts, I think, are actually going to take some time to play out because of how generally opaque and illiquid real estate is as an asset class. But I think that's the biggest picture takeaway, that you have higher interest rates, that changes discount rates, and therefore that affects valuations across the different subcategories of commercial real estate. And then there are also kind of smaller narratives about each of those different asset classes, depending on how they've been dealing with the pandemic period. Gotcha, gotcha. And can you talk mechanically just about how interest rates drive changes in valuations? So there are two ways of thinking about it. One way is the user cost framework for thinking about valuation. So that idea is when you're interested in valuing a real estate asset, you're going to think about the cost of the user of trying to purchase and hold a position. So you're going to add up the interest expense associated with the mortgage on the property. You'll add up the maintenance, the property taxes, and you also take into account potentially any expected capital appreciation for the property. And the idea with this user cost framework is that will result in an equilibrium to the extent that the all-in cost of purchasing a property, inclusive of those interest rate costs coming from the mortgage, should in equilibrium equate to the rent, the per period rent for that same property, because in equilibrium, if one were cheaper than the other, then people would switch from buying to renting and vice versa. So the fact that you have such a large change in interest rates is going to impact the user cost of just literally going out, getting a mortgage for a property. And so on balance, that's going to switch people over to renting until such time as we kind of find equilibrium and prices sort of readjust. The other way of thinking about it is more of a traditional financial asset perspective in which you value any asset as the discounted sum of future cash flows. And real estate being a pretty long-lived asset is going to rely a lot on those far and future cash flows. And you need to figure out the right discount rate to use, but you're basically going to figure out the 
long-term interest rate that is going to coincide with the duration of your cash flows. And you're going to discount those cash flows appropriately with that long-term interest rate. And hence, changes in the interest rate will have impacts on your fair market valuation based on how you are discounting those future cash flows. That makes sense. That makes sense. I'm, I, I'm curious, interest rates themselves, should we expect higher interest rates than we have right now or lower interest rates than we have right now over the next decade? So that's a really interesting question. So I, as a financial economist, I always kind of look at what markets are telling me, right? And what markets are sort of signaling is that we have a little bit of an inverted yield curve in the sense that a lot of short-term interest rates are higher than some long-term interest rates. And long-term interest rates are sort of the market's expected short rates over that interval plus some sort of additional risk premium to account for uncertainty along the way. And that kind of means that the market is sort of expecting that we're going to have high inflation in the short term and high interest rates that go along with that. And over the long term, we would see lower interest rates, either because inflation kind of comes down or because a recession kicks in and the Fed lowers interest rates to deal with that. So I think that's sort of the market sentiment. That's sort of the Fed's dot plot projections. That would be sort of my base case. And I think that view sort of reiterates this idea that we've had low interest rates for a long period of time before the pandemic. And that seems to be driven by a lot of structural factors, including demographics, secular stagnation, many other different factors. And to the extent that those factors continue to predominate, you would expect long-term interest rates to come back to that sort of long-term average. So again, that's sort of my base view. I think there's potentially some room for uncertainty around that. And one reason to be particularly uncertain is if you're not really quite sure why it is that we've actually had these low long-term interest rates in the past, right? And there may be structural factors that lead to a break in that relationship that might lead you to think that, well, maybe long-term interest rates might be adjusting upwards on a more persistent basis. Gotcha. That makes sense. I, I'm curious. Recently, I was talking to Paul Schmelzing at Yale. He's a kind of an economic historian. He wrote a paper about how perhaps like over the last 800 years, there's been kind of this super secular decline in interest rates and that over time, we're just going to see progressively lower interest rates if you chart this kind of trend line out. Um, do you buy that kind of thesis that we've just been on kind of this, this long march towards, you know, maybe goods are getting more durable or something like that? Or, you know, he has this theory that elite uh, elites are dying less in violent conflict. And so their time preference is, is, is scooting around. Um, what's your thought about that? Do you think over the long term, the, the very long term, we'll see like this uh, kind of steady decline in interest rates? Or is that just kind of a, uh, just a trend that might reverse? I'm a little agnostic on that question. One aspect of this debate that I kind of find interesting relates to some of the ongoing debates we're having about like Facebook and Twitter, actually. So one of the common explanations that you often hear for why there is such a low equilibrium rate of interest rate, this R star, right, that the Fed is kind of trying to target, is kind of the idea that maybe firms in the modern economy don't need as much capital as they once did. So Larry Summers is associated with this view, and he calls it secular stagnation. And his kind of idea is that, well, if you look at companies like WhatsApp, they kind of yeah. were able to scale and grow really rapidly and didn't really have many employees. So it seems like maybe firms just don't need that much capital. And I kind of love thinking about that example because now if you look at tech companies, if you look at how many employees Facebook has or Twitter has, right? you see these are actually very large companies. They actually hire many, many people and they actually have quite a bit of CapEx as well. 
when you think about all the data storage centers that they've been investing in, and data storage, of course, has been a very super hot area in commercial real estate. So that might lead you to think that, well, maybe we temporarily had low investment demand, but maybe that has changed. The pandemic may have persistently impacted the way that firms approach their hiring needs and their investment demand. Um, as a consequence, you might actually have a higher R-star, higher equilibrium natural rate of interest because of fundamentally higher firm demand. I'm not going to say I 100% believe that story either, but I think it's just interesting to interrogate why it is that we actually think long-term interest rates should or should not be low. Makes sense. So it, it, it depends is really the answer there. There's a lot of factors that go into it. Very cool. Very cool. Um, Arpit, I, I want to move on and talk about um, other factors that might be driving kind of uh, prices and valuations in commercial real estate. Work from home is probably the biggest one uh, people are thinking about right now. It, you know, do you think we'll see some big return to the office or have we kind of each the, reached the equi equilibrium where, you know, going forward, you know, there's going to be some percentages, you know, maybe it's 30% of the population that's working remotely, but then um, everyone else is still going to be in the office? Yeah, so I think the rise of remote work has really just been this absolutely fascinating experiment in real estate because for decades and centuries, this was one of the fundamental reasons that was tying people to places, just the basic reality that you have to live where you work. And now we are able to kind of break that link a little bit, and it's just sort of fascinating to see how rapidly this change has taken over the economy and to look at the profound implications I think this has on real estate as well as its valuation. Thinking about how persistent this trend is going to be, I'm actually a little agnostic about that as well, or at least I recognize that there's a lot of fundamental uncertainty, I would say, in both directions. So I think the case for why remote work might not be as persistent as we think, I think would start from recognition that we went into remote work as a result of the very unusual circumstance or the pandemic, right? This was a collective learning experience when we were all forced to do remote work more or less, and a lot of firms embraced it as a consequence, but there may be long-term harms that we're not really seeing day to day. So I hear people that are working remotely that, that say, look, I'm just getting tired of it. I would just like to have a little bit more human contact. People are concerned about the impacts on culture of their firms that they work at. And I think it's possible that in a couple of years, people will kind of think back and say, well, okay, we've gained something in terms of flexibility. Employees liked it temporarily. But the long-term costs in terms of the mentorship, the new idea generation, the collaboration, so on and so forth, really just isn't worth the cost of go, you know, going fully remote. And you might see, as a consequence, uh, more firms heading back into the office. I'm, I'm not 100% sure, by the way, that a recession is actually going to be the trigger. So you hear that speculation a lot, that changing the bargaining power between firms and employees is really going to push more people back into the office. There may be some truth to that thesis if you think about companies like Snap and Twitter that have brought more of their employees back to the office. But on balance, recessions tend to be really bad for real estate and tend to be bad in particular for, for office demand. So I don't know if I am super optimistic that recessions are really going to what's going to bring people back. But I can imagine that over the long run, people reassess the value of their collaborations in person. So that would be kind of the case that, okay, over time, maybe things adjust and people come back to the office. I can also see a case going the other direction that we actually see more remote work in the future than we currently do today. So I think the reason for that is when you look at how remote work currently functions, the vast majority of workers who are working remotely appear to be doing so on a hybrid schedule. Right, they're coming into some physical office some number of days of the week. And there's maybe 10, 20% of workers that are fully remote that are 
that are not coming in with any regularity or may not even be in the same city that their head, their firm's headquarters is in, but the majority of workers appear to be on a hybrid system. And hybrid work gets some of the benefits of remote work, but not really most of them. So hybrid work allows you to save a little bit on your office space. It allows you to move maybe further out into the suburbs or change a little bit your residential location, change a little bit your desired commercial space needs. But going fully remote saves you a whole lot more, right? It allows workers to actually change the entire MSA, the city that they're operating in. It allows firms to really save a lot more on their office needs compared to if you're going to a hybrid situation. So And the the final thing that going fully remote really buys you is being able to tap into a truly national labor market. So I saw a great statistic from the CEO of LinkedIn, who was talking about their internal job platform. And he said that LinkedIn went from about 1% to 14% of workers being fully remote in terms of their job postings. And that that's sort of interesting by itself. Such a, it's a yeah. large change to how job advertisements work. But he said the thing that was really interesting about that shift is you're now seeing half of all job applications go to that 14% of fully remote positions. So there is enormous latent demand for fully remote jobs. As a consequence, if you are hiring for a fully remote job, you're probably going to be able to get a lot better talent than if you were hiring in your own city. And so I can also imagine a world in which the talent benefits, the matching benefits of getting a fully remote worker and figuring out a completely remote environment are going to outweigh over time some of the benefits of being in person. So those are kind of my my two cases for our current situation being sort of a holding pattern between two, two broader extremes. I love that. I love that. And what is your sense of, um, you know, and have you seen any literature around productivity for remote workers? Do you think it's, uh, is it higher? Is it lower? Do we see it in the numbers yet? Can we really tell or draw any conclusions? I think the big picture to take away is that it's really hard to find any estimate of productivity impact that lines up with the real estate costs that it takes to keep workers in the office. I, I think that that's really the big takeaway, that you can think about some of the softer costs of going remote. So those, again, include things like the collaboration, the cross-team functionality, some of the mentorship maybe. Those might be kind of harder to measure consequences of productivity. If you were to look at more harder measures, like how many keys are you typing, how many GitHub commits are you doing, those kinds of studies don't seem to find that much in the way of changes, maybe some positive, maybe some negative. But those are kind of measured against the employee satisfaction, which is massive. People really like being remote, at least some number of days of the week, again, if not fully remote, as well as just a broader flexibility that affords firms in terms of saving on real estate space and having better flexibility. So I think those benefits are generally outweighing the costs, whatever those costs happen to be, for many firms out there. Makes sense. Uh, when we're thinking about co- you know commercial valuations coming down, an- another thing uh, w- which you've already mentioned is uh, you know a potential recession on the horizon. Um, do you think we'll see a recession in 2023? What are the odds there? What do they look like? And um, do you expect that to affect commercial real estate prices? Yeah, I'm not sure I have a magic ball to uh, look into the future. What I can certainly say is that there is uh, a lot of expectation of recession risk. If you think about forecasters, if you think about consumers, there's a lot of pessimism in the economy with respect to that outcome. So I think that alone tells you that it has some possibility. I'm not really sure how likely it's going to be. I think a lot of it ultimately will depend on how the Federal Reserve changes its interest rate policy and how that ultimately winds up affecting the economy. But if we do have a recession, I think it will certainly be a negative experience for real estate. Real estate is 
uh, very cyclical asset class. In fact, there are some people who argue the business cycle is real estate, essentially, because the most volatile component of GDP, the one that changes the most around recessions, is uh, typically real estate investment. So construction, building, things like that. And the broader ancillary parts of the real estate environment also tend to kind of move a lot in recessions. So it will definitely be the sector that is most sensitive to a downturn should it happen. That's great. Can, can you talk about that a little bit more and just double click on that? I think uh, the listeners of this podcast will find that quite intriguing that, uh, you know, it, uh, a lot of people in appraisal and assessment think about, you know, chasing the market and, and trying to get you know, valuations correct. And, and, and that's often a challenge they face. It seems uh, particularly pertinent that uh, real estate is perhaps the most volatile asset class that exists. Right. So you can kind of break the returns into two pieces, right? So as we were kind of talking about earlier, you have the actual cash flow, the actual income, and then you have sort of the discounting effect, how much you put a multiple on those cash flows and get to a value of the capital asset. So what you typically see in downturns is the cash flow side of real estate is impaired, but is somewhat stable, right? So if you're thinking of the rents that are being produced in commercial properties, for example, income being produced by commercial leases, that type of income is typically actually somewhat stable. And that's because the income that's produced from real estate asset is most commonly coming from long-term leases. So gotcha. only some fraction of those leases are going to kind of come due at any given moment. However, the price of real estate assets tends to be a lot more volatile. And as a result, the capital income uh, that you can think of as the returns from selling real estate, that changes a lot around downturns. And that change in price tends to have big implications for a lot of other players in real estate marketplaces. So one thing that happens, for instance, is liquidity tends to go down a lot during downturns. And so that has implications for brokers, anyone that's trading real estate, anyone that's trying to get financing on real estate. So the whole transaction side tends to be very badly hit when recessions happen. The other thing that tends to happen is the decline in prices can be associated with defaults. And so you have to deal with credit losses that might pile up either in commercial or residential. And then the other big shooter drop is typically the new construction side of things, the investment side of things, because you only want to construct and invest if you're able to actually have an asset at the end of it that you're able to sell at a high market price, obviously, right? And the time to build factor is very high in real estate. So you're trying to project several years out what the price will be for a particular asset, and you don't necessarily have full visibility on what that's necessarily going to be. And so typically what happens in recessions is construction activity kind of grounds to a halt. People then move on and do other things because there's no jobs to be had in, in construction work anymore. And that whole investment side of things tends to be very interest rate sensitive, very downturn sensitive. And as a result, investment is one of the more cyclical components of GDP. That makes sense. It also seems like construction would, would be even more cyclical because if you have this in, in lag, because you have this issue where if you have skilled talent that moves out of the industry periodically, you know you have to rebuild that kind of institutional knowledge. You know, very much more frequently than in other industries. Yeah, and this was a huge issue after two thousand eight, because you just you just saw a lot of home builders went bust, a lot of talent in the industry left, and it really took many years, and arguably has never quite recovered to what it was before two thousand eight because of all the sort of hysteresis that sort of crept in as a result. So that makes the real estate industry a very challenging one to operate in from the construction side. And I think that's one of the many complicated reasons why productivity growth in real estate construction has been so low. So by some measures, 
real estate construction productivity growth has been the lowest or one of the lowest among all sectors going back several decades. So the fact that we're not getting very, you know, we're not getting very much better at building real estate is a huge problem and it's one of the drivers of the affordability crises we have. You know, I, I've seen some really interesting things about how, like, real estate productivity, uh, excuse me, construction productivity has has been very, very poor. Uh, we, we've talked about the knowledge uh, issue and, and, you know, hysteresis where if you lose all these people, you know, success begets success and failure begets failure in these these kind of industries. Uh, what other factors are driving these, these uh, you know, just really poor, low productivity in construction itself? I, I don't have a complete answer, but I think some factors I would point to include the following. So you typically have a very fragmented marketplace when it comes to real estate construction. So you may have different players, each of which are important only in a small local market. So that makes it more difficult to have a nationally fully integrated builder. You have a lot of issues related to regulations, of course. So regulations both in terms of zoning and planning. So what is allowed to be built in a particular area as well as in building regulations. So how exactly are you going to go about building the specific unit? And the combination of both of these sets of regulations often means, I think, that the kind of optimal scale of the business is relatively small because you have to navigate this whole thicket of regulations, which vary drastically based on the location. And so I think that means that you don't have firms that reach the sufficient scale that's kind of necessary to really invest in productivity-enhancing technologies. I see. And I think that the regulation itself just kind of makes it a little bit more difficult to, to make that happen. It's, it's a little bit of a puzzle, though, I would say, because if you talk to builders, you talk to people in the real estate industry, they can point, to, you, know, point you to a lot of different incremental improvements that have happened in the construction industry. So any individual part of the process seems like it's actually gotten better. So we've improved our capacity to build all the individual subcomponents of homes, but somehow producing an entire home, you know, there we just haven't really seen the growth in productivity over time. And so, you know, trying to kind of figure out, okay, how is it that we're better at, you know, kind of, you know, putting in nails, but it's, it's harder to build a whole, you know, entire home. I think you have to look at those regulations. You have to think about, okay, what are the additional requirements that it kind of takes to build a home now compared to before? What are all the different steps in, in the process? And particularly when you think about the building permitting regulations, you think about their impact, not only on the cost, but also on the uncertainty and the time. So the fact that it kind of increases the delay, increases the uncertainty, adds a huge premium to a lot of costs because you're just not sure whether something is going to work out, right? It's very hard to get financing for a project to tie down an architect if you don't know the project is going to get approved in the end. Uh, and obviously, those those regulate, regulatory issues are largest for the multifamily part of the stock when you're thinking about building in, uh, you know, areas that should be more dense and the local homeowners are NIMBYs and are opposing the projects. But I think they also apply more broadly, even in thinking about commercial real estate, which I think has its own set of zoning, productivity growth issues, and even when it comes to greenbelt construction out in the suburbs and the exurbs. So the single family home construction market out into the suburbs and exurbs, that seems to be like the part of the market that, you know, should be the most free from regulatory constraints, because you can just build homes uh, a lot more easily. And yet, it doesn't really seem to me that we are, even in that sector of the market, really experiencing the type of productivity growth you kind of hope or expect in order for homes to kind of get progressively cheaper. And, you know, just one, one kind of final note 
if you're just kind of thinking about the broader process by which we build homes, right, it's, it's you know, it's, it's a little crazy because you're bringing one day a carpenter to a site, the next day you're bringing in, you know, someone that's going to put in the electrical wiring and so on and so forth. Imagine if you're building a car like this, right? One day someone shows up and puts in a tire, <laughs> two days later someone comes in and puts on the windshield wipers, right? That, that, that's no way to build a car, right? We've, right. you know, developed these processes for developing cars that relies on automation and factories and the whole process for manufacturing homes is not nearly as well developed by contrast. So that is potentially part of the solution as well as to figure out how can we make prefabrication manufactured homes a bigger part of the diet of the residential stock. Makes sense. Well, what are the incentives? I've always been so curious about this that drive, um, you, you know, this model where there's a general contractor and everything subcontracted out, whereas, you know, versus like vertical integration for, for these firms. It, do, you have, do you have a good sense of that? Is like, is it a regulation thing? Is it a unionization thing? Is it something else entirely? I'm not entirely sure, to be completely honest, but I hear gotcha. what you're saying, right? You would ideally have a firm that internalizes the fact that they're going to be doing all of this together. Yes. And I think there is some integration happening in the industry. For example, what you see in places like Texas these days is you might see 10% of all homes in this build-to-rent part of the market, right? So that's where you're going to have a building that is going to be constructed for a company that is going to immediately rent the unit out, right? And so you hope that that kind of system better aligns incentives because the yes. person that's doing the building is going to then turn around and rent out the unit. And so if there's a failure in the electrical wiring, well, that's going to result in some long-term costs to being able to rent the unit out. And so you hope that, right. okay, maybe the incentives are a little bit better aligned when you have that kind of structure. But it is a very fragmented marketplace. It involves a lot of different cosine interactions between different entities that don't always internalize the long-run cost of the final output. The whole contracting space is just rife with information asymmetries. Often the way we address these kinds of information asymmetries in other markets is through consolidation and vertical integration that allows for better value capture by ensuring that, well, okay, my downstream customer is, is also myself. And you don't really see that as much in real estate. And so it's all a very opaque marketplace. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, one last set of questions here for you. Um, what do you see is going on currently in the residential real estate market? And where do you think we're going over the next you know, short period of time? Yeah, it's, it's really crazy. And the easiest answer, I think, for why it got so crazy is a combination of remote work and low interest rates. So it's kind of the combination of the fact that we had these super low borrowing costs and we just kind of went through the whole logic of why low borrowing costs should improve right. or increase the value of the asset. Uh, and th so that's kind of happening, let's say, on the supply side of interest rates, you know, improving financing conditions. And that was kind of met with a lot of demand for housing stock by people that are interested in working remotely and therefore they want a home office, they want a home gym, uh, you know, larger kitchen and so on and so forth. So it was sort of the combination of those factors, I think, that led to such a large run-up in prices. You also saw a run-up in rents as well. And so to the extent you're seeing cash flow increases as well as price increases, you say, okay, well, it's it's maybe partly fundamental, partly uh, changes in discount rates. The surprising thing, though, is now what you're seeing is you're seeing rents go down. So household formation, which kind of increased over the pandemic, people kind of leaving roommates, you know, that sort of reversed a little bit. So people don't need as many individual houses, you sort of see interest rates going up. And so putting those things together, you would sort of expect, okay, well, the market should contract by like 20%. Yeah. You know, it there should be a substantial correction in residential markets. And you certainly see a large correction in transaction volume. 
you certainly see a correction in prices that's beginning in some markets. What's really surprising, I think, is that you have not seen yet the type of nationwide correction that should be justified on the basis of fundamentals, fundamentals being predominantly those shifts in interest rates. And I think one of the things that's happened is people have locked in extremely low interest rates. And so you have a lot of people with what's sometimes called a two-handle, right? An interest rate that begins with two and has you know some numbers after it, but it's less than a 3% interest rate. And if you're one of these people, and there's a lot of these people out there, you're basically never going to move again. Because <laughs> why, why would you move? You're locked right. in this extremely low fixed rate interest rate. Any interest rate you would get would be higher than that. And so what is the incentive to sell this home and buy another home and switch and get a much higher interest rate? And that is sort of keeping a lot of inventory off the market. So there are a lot of people, I think, who would be much more willing to sell. And those sales would kind of be part of the process of price discovery. That's how we would discover that prices are falling is by more and more people deciding to sell. And instead, the existing stock of people who just lucked out and bought, ho- bought housing the last couple of years, they, they're just locked in now. It's, it's almost like a nationwide Prop 13 that we <laughs> okay. have people just locked into these extremely low interest rates, unwilling to sell. And when half the market is not really willing to participate, that means that the buyers are uh, a little bit at a disadvantage. It's just hard for them to find inventory. It's hard for them to find any housing stock. And just, we just see transaction volumes very low. And so that's just kind of the situation we're in. So you think this is probably, it sounds like this is just likely to continue for quite a while then. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little it, uncertain about what, what else would happen, right? Like, I, yeah, I, yeah. How, sure how, long this, happen, yeah. how long this will continue. You know, obviously, yeah. if there are further income losses that result from a recession, maybe that triggers more for selling or something like that, more foreclosure sales and so forth. If there are, you know, if there is more clarity on the interest rate situation, maybe interest rates go down and that unlocks some moves. Maybe interest rates kind of stay elevated and people sort of capitulate and decide, okay, well, I have to kind of sell eventually. Or over a long enough time period, these mortgages will amortize out and then people have to get new mortgages. So something is is going to happen over the long run. But I can imagine this market remaining frozen a little bit for certainly the short run and uh, kind of unclear what's going to happen in the medium and long run. My, my base case is, is, again, that you will have a you know at least a 20% decline, 10, 20% decline, I don't know, from uh, uh, from the absolute pandemic heights, which would still leave the housing market above what it was in uh, the pre-pandemic era. But uh, you're not quite seeing that yet. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, well, Arpit, thanks again for, for coming on the show. I, I learned a lot today. Where can people find you? Uh, where should we send them? Yeah, so I have a website, arpitgupta.info. Uh, I'm active on Twitter, uh, at Arbitrage. And you can also find me with a uh, newsletter that's uh, also arbitrage.substack. Awesome. Thanks so much. Great. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to Assessment Matters. Come back next week for another episode. You can check out our website to find show notes, videos, transcripts, and more at valuebase.co slash podcast.